Welcome to the Innovation Calling Podcast, where we connect creators for the next big thing. We're your hosts, Aaron Greger and Sia Yasso Tornrat. Hey, it's Aaron Greger and it's Sia Yasso Tornrat, and welcome to another episode of Innovation Calling. All right, so today's episode. Yes. So, you know, Aaron, I don't know if you noticed, but when we're booking, sometimes it's just top of mind and you're talking about topics. Here's another data science, data analytics uh, topic. We have a data science theme happening. We went from military to data science. We're kind of jumping all over the place. (laughs) But uh, so I found this individual uh, in an article. And again, maybe because I was researching data science and understanding, uh, I fell upon this company called Trend Data. And what they do is AI-driven predictive modeling. Again, around HR. Okay, so this is about business and understanding their staff, their culture, and kind of understanding how to uh, maximize productivity for a business. And so Andrew Davis is our guest, and he is the head of product management at Trend Data. Gracious enough to sit down and educate me, learned me some data science and terminology. So Aaron, uh, what did you think of our conversation there? I thought it was an interesting conversation. Like he talked a lot about the data, and I'll be honest with you, I should have realize the direction we might go in you know because i mean i know we have a so just to kind of give um give you an idea of what we do so we have an uh, an outline of what we know we're going to talk about but then we kind of let the conversation go too and it was just really interesting to talk about the different perspectives of hiring and the and the data that they're seeing by being an hr company and and how the landscapes changed Mm. i've become the old woman Who's like, well, that's not the way it has been done. Uh, I've become that person because I'm like, oh, my gosh, these these kids these days, these kids, I'm saying it. And it's just crazy to me how the landscape has changed from company, you know, as a company who hires and as a company who brings on a workforce. It's it's so important to know these things and what the expectations are, because it's no longer like, listen, I would love to have a person stay with us, you know, here at Innovation Media for 10 years but the reality is as awesome as we are Sia we are awesome we are awesome but it's just not going to happen because that's not the way it is so I love the conversation we just had about the data that they're seeing and how this applies and pretty much anyone listening to this if you you know are in a startup if you're in a company it applies to you because you've got to know this when when bringing people on absolutely and it goes back to the generations. It's not necessarily good or bad. I think some people have a negative it perspective. Is, yeah. It just it's an evolution of life, if you will. And I, and I actually argue this. We have traditionally put generations as twenty years, because of technology and the acceleration of technology. I mean, I already see it in my own nieces and nephews. My fourteen-year-old nephew cannot relate to the nine-year-old. They don't understand. I think acceler. I think my argument is generation is going to be shortened. It's going to be ten-year gap. Because so much is going on and we as businesses have to accommodate for that. So that's my two seconds. On that note, very excited to welcome Mr. Andrew Davis over at Trend Data. Hey, Andrew, welcome to Innovation Calling. Thank you, Sia. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Aaron. Glad yes. to be here. Happy so, to have you here. So, uh, Aaron, yet again, my LinkedIn stocking skills have uh, amassed. Perfect. I've, I've dug up another great guest for us. So, Andrew is the uh, head of product management at Trend Data. And so, I've never heard of Trend Data 
So forgive me for this because I was like, what? It's day-to-day innovation calling. It is. We just had a data scientist uh, doctor uh, ahead of us. So Wonderful. So I I figured that was a good primer for us to talk to Andrew with. So, Andrew, thank you so much. So let's talk about your background a little bit before we talk about trend data, if you don't mind. Certainly. Um, Because you are a very uh, well-versed and well-knowledgeable person. How did that come about? Because you came from Minnesota Minnesota. What does yes, that mean? You know? So <laughs> well-versed people don't usually come from no. Minnesota. Is that no. what you're trying Not to say? Midwest. No. We, we don't speak well. No. It's a you know. We don't know You things. know. No, but actually, no. Given the week we've had in Dallas, though, I'm well accustomed to our weather. You didn't let me finish uh, because you went to school in the North Dakota? Fargo. Ooh, Fargo. There's the O. Yeah. But psychology. Oh, interesting. Okay. And what he's doing now is not the same. No. So help me understand. What, what what happened in your life, my dear, that you ended up here? It's it's a mess. I originally went to Fargo for polymers and coatings. I was a big uh, chemistry geek. Um, but I couldn't handle all the lab time. It's just a lot. They don't prepare you for that. And um, my father worked for IBM growing up and later Univac. I forget how they did the split there. Uh, but I always had computers. And so the transition into management information systems was quite natural. Uh, but then always just liked understanding how people worked. And that's, that's the, the understudy in psychology, taking it. And, and now in big data and almost uh, into the behavioralism of data. So we have uh, a mentor of mine once gave a, a great premise, like data without context is irrelevant. And that really sticks with me. And the fact that you have all these data points, but what does that really mean? And how does that help you understand behavior? What are people yearning for, right? Because when you when you look at it and you say, okay, I've, I've got all these data points online and I can see what happened, that's hindsight. So you've predicted what happened, but that's past tense. What you want to know is where people are going. And so that's where I like the convergence between the two, not only the data science, but also the behavioral insight. Yeah. Yeah. We got another good hour coming up here. Yeah. Uh, in your career, and as you've looked at data and you looked at behavior around data, it's been, you know, let, let's say a decade of worth of experience that you have. Do you see any shifts or trends um, regarding human behavior with the data that you're seeing? The biggest one being around it's expected now. Um, and I think it's, it's expected somewhat, in what way? It's expected from a consumer perspective or a personal okay. perspective. Uh, so if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, people really didn't realize that they were leaving this electronic breadcrumb trail. And so there were very few companies at that time taking advantage of it. Uh, but the Internet has a history. And so a lot of those breadcrumb trails are still in existence. Uh, whereas uh, the next you know, young adult generation that came 2000s, 2000s teens as we are now, they're they're on the opposite side where they expect it. And so you see things like, you know, uh, popular party topics, like what's your what's your uh, personal side, you know, handle on whatever service they're on. So maybe you're on Facebook and you've got your public facing identity, but then what's your private facing identity? Because you probably have two. So that way, when an employer asks for one, you give them the one that looks nice. But when your friends ask for one, you give them the one that's really got your party reputation on it. The challenge there is that you know, you're protected from an employer perspective that they're they're monitoring your your LinkedIn profile page. Um, but from a, a Lexus, Nexus, a Google, a Facebook data collection, I mean, they get to see it all. And so that goes back to the behavioralism that we we still cognitively think that there's a, a boundary online, the things I can do 
uh, public facing and the things they can do pi- private facing and nobody knows about it. And that's just not true. Uh, on the back end, we do know about it. And then back to the behavioralism of this, how people express themselves when they think they're being watched and then how people express themselves when they don't think they're being watched, even though we can see you like private mode on a browser. Your local computer is scrubbed, but everything that happens through a DNS server. It's being documented it's somewhere. It's being documented somewhere. And it's all resolved to the same IP. So yes, we know it's still you. Oh. Oh, yeah. Nice. No, it, okay. it, actually, it actually tells you like, yeah. So. Yeah, I don't read the decli- disclaimers. But go ahead. So you, I, I'm going back to human behavior. So you, you had mentioned like we have our online presence and we have our offline presence. With the growth of social media and the popularity of usage of social media, mm-hmm. do you think our behaviors evolved professionally as social media has? Meaning people post anonymously and they say they troll, like the whole world of trolling sure. and all that stuff. Do you see that bleeding into the business world in the way we communicate? I don't know if there's a big change. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to is um, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. And essentially they look at um, history in, perspe- in perspective of current events today. And so they'll, yeah. they'll go back in time. Sometimes it's 100 years. It's just fascinating. They did a piece God, probably a year and a half ago now um, where they brought up the news headlines when telephones first emerged, right? And so you think about it, you know, your whole world was just who you knew down the street. And now you're going to put a telephone line in and uh, the original telephone lines were party lines. So they ran one right. line through the neighborhood. Anybody who pick up the phone is eavesdropping on all their neighbors. And they were just talking about how this was going to be the end of privacy and the end of civility and everybody was going to be in anybody else's business. But the way he presented it was wonderful because he he told you the headline first, uh, but you didn't. he didn't tell you the context. And so you thought they were talking about the latest Today. craze in social yeah. media. Oh, and he, wow. lo and behold, he's like, this is from a paper in the 1850s. So it's very cyclical of... Uh, one of the discussions there is is privacy and the fact that privacy is a relatively new phenomenon. Prior to the 1950s, we really didn't have – like you were in small town America. Your neighbors were in your business. Um, you know, mail was still being hand delivered. People just knew there really wasn't a way for you to have ultimate anonymity. And then, you know, starting with – you know, the, the corporate explosion in 50s and, and and the burgeoning middle class. And we moved out into the suburbs and we started to get this concept of it. And now we have this perception like we've always had it. And it's something we need to fight for when we don't realize, like, from a tribal perspective, you think back about it, you know, kings and castles, local communities, everybody knew everything about everyone. Well, but I think, too, it's just because it's so... You know, it was maybe I lived in a town where 20 people could know something right now. 20,000 could. I mean, correct that 20,000 people care what I do. But if they wanted to, they could essentially. There's people like me out there that quantify all the data. Exactly. Exactly. To you. But I definitely know what demographic you fall in. Exactly. You know, my habits, Mm -hmm. you know, things I like, don't like all of that. So, yeah, I mean, that's from that perspective. It has changed because now. There's more eyes watching me, right? There's right. more people that want to know that whether it's I care what Aaron does personally versus I just want to know how to market to her or sell to right. her or make I better decisions from her. Populous your demographic. Is. Yeah, exactly. And this is why you'll see this uh, most prevalent today uh, in terms of uh, 
when, you know, when we were growing up, you go to the mall and there'd be those people you want to take a survey. Nobody does that anymore. And the reason is twofold. One, data is already prevalent, so I don't have to ask you. I can just look. But two, we realized real quickly, back to the, the public versus private, that if I ask you to take a survey, you are going to answer from a public perspective what you want me to know. Exactly. But as a marketer, I need to know who you really are. So it's much easier to look at the data and see your actual behavior to know where the truth is versus what you're going to tell me. And this comes back to even modern day elections. Well, I'm not going to get yeah, political. Well, even but Gallup census polls. data. Yes. Yeah. Like how I think there'd be a way more accurate way to take census data than what we did 50 years ago and still doing. Right. Oh, the only going door to door. You yeah. yeah. It's just tradition. It's yeah. tradition. And then from a government perspective, things like, you know, they can't, by law, they can't use social security yeah. data. They, there's certain things they can't use. And that's why you have companies like LexisNexis out there because they're private. They don't have those regulations. What were you going to say about political, though? You were going to go there. Oh, when, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, I mean, yeah. neutral at right, this point. Right, right. No, no, no. Not but about the, who you vote for. The belief for. whether right. or not you uh, buy into the Gallup polls. And like the last election cycle and and one of the parties famously saying we're not going to buy into any of the polling. And there's a lot of science behind that because, you know, who's answering the phone in the middle of the day? Um, how many questions? You know, when they take a, a hundred, a sample size of a hundred, there's 330 million people and counting. It's probably higher. Um but you're going to give me a predictive poll based on 100, and then where did you sample them? Is this mm-hmm. rural America? Is this New York City? Like it, it just doesn't work. And then you bring in their their campaign strategists, and then these are the guys that know how how many electoral uh, votes does it have. Let's get the beat on that, and then that's ultimately what led to Cambridge Analytica. Of once you know the data, now you can go buy the ad space. And is it capitalism and marketing, or is it tampering? It's a fine line very exactly that's yeah Yeah. yeah yeah but this is the future Uh all these questions for the next decade this is where this is the big fear in terms of washington of do our political figures really understand the fundamentals just in terms of how much data we have how much we know there's you know socially you can sit down with your friends and you can have a really great flow in the conversation but in terms of alignment, you know what they're publicly expressing. You don't know their de- deepest, darkest secrets. A hundred percent. Yeah. And we've had that conversation before on roundtables that we've done where it's like we've got nothing wrong with the 80-year-old white man. Let's just say they've proven themselves useful in some ways. However, the fact that they're making the data decisions for our country based on the questions that, you know, because we, they really don't understand how to ask the questions to determine right. what these companies are doing. It is a little frightening. And then even, um, you know, <laughs> transcending a little bit, my, my current venture is around people analytics. Um, and you take these social norms and you now put them into play in uh, the employment realm. Right. right. And so social norms uh, and and perception and kind of these, these – um, uh, common knowledge, mm-hmm. it, it's very much around uh, stereotypical populace. So we have this new handle. I don't know if you followed it on uh, any of the news feeds, but it's getting more and more more clout. But this this OK Boomer hashtag. Oh, God. It cracks me oh, up. Okay. Okay. What, is, okay what is this? So you it's essentially it? no. saying for the Boomer generation, the old stuffy white guy, and their views and philosophies that they considered common knowledge or just that's the way it should be, they are very – demographically narrow from their perspective, but that's the way they wanted the world to work. They're no longer the majority. So there's been this big shift 
And, you know, we, we can talk more about like how employers are trying mm-hmm. to keep up there. But there's this big shift now that the way, you know, going through apprenticeship programs and trial by fire and you're going to do it because I told you to do it. That was you know, the old boomer yep. generation. And now from the millennial generation and the I generation that follows, it, we don't work that way. We work m- much more communal and embrace people's strengths and weaknesses, which I actually really appreciate because, yeah. you know, it's much more inclusive, much more holistic. It's not patriarchal, it, hierarchical, right. hierarchical yes. uh, engagement, right? Right. And so now you come back to any anytime there's this is the way it should be and it's a stuffy 80-year-old white guy telling you, then there's this hashtag, okay, boomer, because it's just like, oh, oh yeah, so from unhip. your sim- yeah. simplistic rural, rural <laughs> it, it's a much easy uh, angle to just dictate. Yeah. Now you put that in a, a modern workforce environment and the challenge is nobody wants to work for you. Right. So, and then they, they come calling my company saying, I don't understand. Why don't people want to work for me? And it's like, well, people have a choice today. The modern workforce is much more mobile. We've already taught them lessons in terms of there's no more retirement, 401k. Yeah. Can't is, expect is a that. chance. So no one's going to buy in and just give you 10, 20 years because their parents told them to. Um, and when you think about it, again, you put this holistically and it's like, there's some really good things that come out of it to where um, I've had employers tell me that I need to make a decision. What's a higher priority to me, my family or my job? Wow. Yeah. And, and it's wow. not that. It's it's more uncommon today than it was the past two decades. But for me, it was never really a choice. I would always choose my family, but I had to give up jobs for that because there were those that would come back and say, oh, I will gladly, you know, give my life for this company. But now, you know, in, in the world of retirement, you can kind of understand that because if you're going to employ me for 40 years and give me this big nest egg, uh, there's something there. But that just doesn't exist today. So now the real question back to social norms is why would I, the best you're going to give me, let's say four years, right? Because then you're going to have a management change or a buyout, an M&A, something. So the best you're going to give me four years, why would I ever fathom putting you as a higher priority of my family, even my dog at this point? Because my dog's <laughs> going to be around longer than four years. Exactly. <laughs> no, I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And so now you you graduate that forward to that used to be the the social norm minority, and now it's the social norm majority. And so back to that okay boomer hashtag. Like if you still think that way, you are now in the minority. Like today, it's how do I encourage you? How do I help fulfill you? How do we take this journey together and we all win? Because that's what it's all about. If you're a happy employee, then you're going to do great for my business, which is going to help me as a shareholder in my uh, corporate interest. Yeah. And everybody wins together. Yeah. So interesting. Um, no. I, I'm still laughing at OK Boomer. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. Oh, that's good stuff. No, well, but but I think I think we we have talked about this before, Andrew, about the cyclical nature of generations. And um, I'm wondering though, because you're looking at all this analytics, what trend data does from an HR perspective. Should we back up and say what trend data does from an HR perspective? <laughs> Probably explain take a little bit. To, yeah, take it back to what you all do. What, what you trend, all do. Yeah. What is trend data? So trend data focuses on AI-driven people analytics is our tagline in the space. So people analytics is back to the convergence of data science and behavioralism. So we want to know what's happening, but more importantly, we want to know why, why it's happening and what drives populations. So this is the big one down into... Uh, one of the key things we do is generational planning. And from a workforce perspective, it's very important. Right now, the OK Boomer transition to the millennial uh, and companies that are still operating 
like pay is everything to people because you could get a boomer and an Xer to pretty much do anything for a paycheck. That's just kind of the way we were. Sooner or later, our ethics, I'm an Xer, so sooner or later, my ethics would come in. Um, but, you know, you could give me a 20% bonus and I may think twice about it. Yeah. Uh, that's not as prevalent today. Uh, pay is currently number six in yeah. terms of really? what yeah, engaged. Yes, it is yeah. way far down. Interesting. Yeah. Even like commute is a big one with work, work-life balance. I mean, we just, so there's all sorts of new terms like ghosting. Uh, there's so much demand right now that an employee will accept the offer and they just don't show up day one. They don't even call you. Are you serious? No, it's, it's well known. And, and it's just, you got ghosted. I heard it in the dating world. Yeah. I've never heard Same it in the employer world. employer world. Like it's, it's don't, don't, no shade on that, right? It's just the current generation that everything is, is transient. And the so disrespectful. That... <laughs> oh my gosh. And, and yeah. The reality okay. there is that's also kind of a, I, I, you end up rethinking a lot of this. Like even the whole disrespectful, that too is, I feel like is kind of an okay boomer perception, right? Because in our day and age, it was totally disrespectful. We got to remember the current generation, dating is a swipe now. So, you know, if dating is, is, is nothing more than a swipe, what kind of a commitment is there? I haven't started. We actually haven't seen each other yet. So if I don't show up, I mean, that was just electrons crossing in the night and it's not as big of a deal for the millennials and the I generation as it is for the Xers and the boomers because we feel this, you know, you told me you'd be here commitment. And it's like, well, a better deal came up. How does that change, though, from a hiring perspective? Because do I have to accommodate for the fact of, all right, I'm going to make, for every five offers I make, I'm going to have one ghost, right? So I have to accommodate for that. So when we send offers, we may have to offer a couple people extra or this may take, we're going to, uh, put that into the timeline of how we hire, knowing that we may think it's going to take a month, but then we know at least one person's going to go. So, I mean, right. how do we, how do companies start thinking of that when they know that this is just the way it is now? It's a mess. And it's a mess professionally because we have these um, quid pro quo, yeah, you know, freedom of employment, uh, pay as you go law. And they protect everyone. As an employee, you can leave at any time. As an employer, they can terminate you at any time. But this this becomes the rub, you know, from the data science and the behavioralism aspect is that in order to try to get you on board as quick as possible, I want to shorten that duration. And so we have this two-week notice, which is still really short. Uh, yeah, it is. I, I would like much more from a planning perspective, especially a startup perspective. Like, could you give me maybe a month? Because then I can react. But when you give me two weeks, like you're gone before I know yeah. it, I have to try to figure out how to backfill your position. But on the acquisition side, they're trying to get you to commit. So much like as long as you're just swipes and electrons passing, there's very low sticky factor, right? I'm not emotionally invested yet. But once once I get you past week one and you show up and you're actually starting to like the environment and make acquaintances, now that creates a barrier for transition, right? So you're, you're, you're becoming emotionally invested. Yeah. And so that's really what is changing, whereas... Before it was a, a a transaction where I hand you an offer, you accept it, and it was pretty much a, a contract. Yeah. But again, a contract that could be broken at any time by either party. Whereas now you're seeing the employee onboarding start almost immediately. As soon as I hand you that offer, we're putting you into an onboarding system that's now uh, creating that constant contact feel. Even as an employee, you're you're kind of like a customer in some ways where mm -hmm. I'm saying, hey, glad to have you on board the next day. Uh, oh, by the way, are you thinking about your I-9? And just giving you a little tap, a little touch every day or so. So that way 
you know, your mind is staying invested into your new opportunity. And we see that has a big impact versus companies that, that don't. That um, unless you have a captive audience and some markets and some fields have captive audience, different strategies there, but they have they have some serious problems too. It, it, it just gives you the, the almost where we're going back to family with our employers. And then, of course, with every action as an equal opposite reaction, then you come back to, okay, if I'm thinking of my employer as family, now we have a new rub, which are some employers are in, embracing uh, interpersonal relationships in their workforce because they're going to create that community. Oh. But yet bigger corporations, like you just saw with McDonald's, yeah. right? even though it was a consensual, no harm, no foul, everything was 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 great personally with yeah. their relationship. They have this no personal relationship policy and they asked the CEO to step down, pushed him out. Um, Wait, can you take a step back? I don't know what happened at McDonald's. Oh, yeah. Mc- yeah. The CEO is CEO having some... CEO got pushed out for a... Um, a happy relationship. So some some of the, you know, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, those were terrible situations. With yeah. with McDonald's, nothing, no harm, no foul. It was, they just came forward with the fact that they were having Did she a, work under him though? No, she did not work under him. <laughs> Pardon the so pun. So they but addressed yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> wait, so, wait, I'm sorry. So the CEO had, was he yeah, asked he was, to step yeah, down? Yeah. The board, put, the, well, they asked him and the board told him he didn't have a choice. They pushed him out. So yeah, they... Air quotes asked him. Yeah. And I had no idea. Oh, I missed on that one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I thought she, I thought she was a support. I thought she worked for him though, directly. I don't know, but I don't know. Yeah. Because I looked for that same one. Like, how could this be? But I mean, this happened at Intel. Uh, There was one at Texas Instruments. I don't know if it was the CEO, but a high ranking executive. And so you see this kind of back to generational norms is it's like, you know, you have these big empires and they're so afraid of any kind of claims at work, but realistically, you can't avoid them. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, that's how I met my boyfriend yeah. was at work. So, I mean, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and like you said, it creates fired a... for it. <laughs> well, no, we actually had to keep. We were quiet for two years, yeah. uh, and and I we I made presidents club, and obviously I wanted him to come with me, and he couldn't. We had to get CEO. It went all the way up to sign off. Really? Yeah, and that's I when we came out was. Yeah, it was very weird. It was stupid. But anyway, I don't want to talk about that anymore. I was like the office slut. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was dating everyone. I'm totally kidding. But I did date a couple people, but never got, (laughs) never got in trouble for it. Okay, so we're, 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 we're I digress. I digress. That's all right. We'll have plenty of opportunities for digression. (laughs) You get into data and behavioralism, like you know, Bill Gates is. You know, the, the second most uh, populous use of the internet is to view art. This is some of the things he <laughs> Oh, said. my gosh. <laughs> yeah, a lot of art looking out there. A lot, of, a lot art. of art. A lot of art. Live art, I'm assuming, right? Okay, so quick question <laughs> for you. Uh, going back to the predictive uh, behavior, we talked about generations. And I think I made this point before, and, and, and agree or disagree, or do you feel the reason why the millennials are uh, – thought of a particular way of being a little more looser, not so dedicated, not so there's not loyalty. Do you think it's by nature because they're in their 20s? They don't have a lot of commitments. Now they're entering their 30s into the 40s. They have families. They have mortgages. And then they start settling down like a more traditional. Maybe they do want to hold themselves a little bit more loyal or stability. Do you think it's just a cyclical thing or do you think the millennials really are changing the way our society is going to function? It's both from what we see in the research that's out there and just generational behaviorism. It's nothing new. You're, you're constantly taking, 
you know, two steps into progression, but then you're still holding on. I wouldn't call it one step back, but you're still holding on to some traditional values. Uh, so let's, let's talk about settling down for a moment. Um, so yes, they are quote unquote settling down and they are, they are having children. They're pushing 40. I mean, but now you think of that in traditional home ownership and there's a rub here again, right? So now we take transient workforce and the traditional views of home ownership. So the real change in home ownership, whether you want to call it collapse, how you want to do it, is you now have this middleman because you now have uh, property management firms. Traditionally, they were doing multifamily uh, housing mm-hmm. and now they're doing single family housing. In the past, you thought of that as, as uh, you know, disparate or displaced workforce, but now it's becoming the majority of workforce and the logic is sound. It says, okay, I don't control the market. And if I'm only going to be here five years, Right. And five year, depending on who you talk to, is generally considered the the shortest period you'd physically want to own a property that you could actually get your money out. Because you, there's cost. Yeah. Yeah. With you're not going to get your oh, money out. Oh, because you have to years. Yeah. keep remodeling. When you, when you remodel yeah. it and then you go to sell it and then you have to pay the fees involved. So aside of some markets go up, some markets go go down. But if you want a, a safe return on your investment, a five year hold is considered you know kind of the stable place. You don't know if your job's going to hold out for five years and you now have a different perspective on the world, right? Because we're much more, it used to be you grew up, you didn't leave. I'm the black sheep in my family because I left Minnesota. My sister's still up there. Um, You know, half my family's from Iowa. They're still in Iowa. And here I am down in Texas. So what's keeping me in Texas? So if, if my professional career, you know, goes upside down, why wouldn't I want to think about moving back closer to home? And have that that safety net, and so that's that's what's happening is they're branching out and they're realizing that you know the job's temporary, and if the job goes away or the job market turns south, they've seen what housing collapse can do. They know firsthand house poor. Why would I yeah. want this house that's holding me down when I could rent a house? And now I just give you sixty day notice and I'm out. I actually just read an article. They said home buying uh, yeah, is, down. is down, and that's why. It's not that they don't have the means. It's that there's there's no more slice of Americana anymore. There's no more planting your roots and saying, you know, I'm going to laugh and a bunch of people probably flame like Plano. Like of all things, like Plano's not small town America. Plano's about as transient as America gets. So to say Plano is your roots, and I have a lot of friends of Plano's are roots, so no disrespect here. Um, but for the people that are coming in and out, it's just it's just a stop on their journey. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just this whole back to the generational change. They don't think of, you know, being born, growing up, living, dying in the same local facility right. yeah. that prior generations did. We're much more mobile now. Well, and even too, like I many times you could, I could go back and live in Wisconsin and work for a company out of California. Mm-hmm. Like they're not going to, I mean, that's what I did when I moved here. I was working for a company out of Arizona. My, I met a boy. I'm, they're like, I don't care. All great stories. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Fortunately, that one did turn out so great, but that's a whole hey, other podcast, journey, but it was about, about a, exactly. But they were like, I don't care where you live as long as you get the work you done. Get to, yeah. As long as you get, and you're close to an airport. That's all we care about. So you have those opportunities now where I don't have to be stuck somewhere. I can literally get a, a job from anywhere around the world and, and for some companies. Mm-hmm. if there will, And that's probably another thing that's very important. I don't want to get in a car anymore and commute. Right. I want to work from home and I don't want you to question it. Just let me get my work done. And there is a big change coming here. So I talked about uh, skilled workforce yeah. and certain drivers. Uh, so right now we're seeing a big problem at uh, – at the the national level mm-hmm. of things like nursing because um, it's a physically 
driven occupation. It pays well. Yeah. But like the military, there's there's a life change involved. Yeah. Like you you can't be a nurse from home. Um and you may have to work hours because hospitals don't close where it takes an impact on your personal life. And so in the next two generations where personal life is actually holding more clout. And some interesting ways this manifests. So for the Xers and the boomers, we could take temporary working assignments and we could say for six months, I'm going to go to Seattle because I want that experience. And it wasn't a big deal. We'd wait for each other, right? Right. That's not prevalent today. So if you're going to leave, um, so we have controllable and non-controllable reasons you turn over um, your your staffing. And one of the top non-controllable reasons is their significant other moved. Mm. Right. And and in prior generations, just because your significant other moved doesn't mean you're moving. You might stay here for a while. But now that they're up in Seattle, you don't want them to be in Seattle alone back to this transactional and this emotional investment. So you're going to follow them now. Um, and so then I, this is sometimes in coaching um, in the data and in the behavioralism of employers say, how do I stop my turnover and how do I do this? How do I do that? One of the first places I start is, well, what are the controllable factors and what are the uncontrollable factors? Oh, you don't even think about that. Yeah. Oh, yes. So uh, I was working with a, a finance client on the East Coast and they were losing their data science team to Google and they were wondering we're just, how to compete. Yeah. And I brought up the sheer fact of these are data scientists that obviously want to be challenged, that obviously want to be on the cutting edge, that may not be fully vested into finance. It's a novel challenge for them to work on now. But there isn't really a way you can compete with Google because you're Wall Street and you're looking at returns and they're looking at just straight research and I want to understand yeah. how the world works. Uh, and you, you, sometimes you just have to transition your perspective of saying, okay, how do I make the three-year you know, tenure that they're going to have with me the most fruitful? I need to embrace them coming and going because I'm going to get to – you know, pick their brains while they're here. I'm yeah. definitely going to benefit. So it's not a detractor. So that was one of the biggest changes for this company was to say that this is not slighting that they're leaving you. This is personal growth for them. So you need to stop thinking about how you prevent it and start thinking about how you embrace it and figure out a program and how you just, you know, when they leave, keep that door open so you can get this nice referral program going and they can refer someone else to replace replace them in that capacity. It's so interesting because right before... We were having a conversation about there's a company here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. They're a smaller tier than, let's say, the Toyota. And they're having a hard time keeping people because they bring them in at an entry level. They train them. They get them ready. And then Toyota's like, hey, come work for us for a lot more money. And they're wondering, like, how do we how do we solve this problem? How do we fix this? Because we can't we don't have the money to compete with Toyota or even right. to your point. Toyota's a lot sexier than, you know, or like Google's a lot sexier than maybe a finance job. So it's just really interesting that it's not a matter of, all right, we got to fix it. Right. It is what it is. How do we make the best of it? It's a totally different perspective. And that's usually where we start. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things we can tell you right away in your data, but then we start with one of the, the first perceptions that are broken is how do I stop it? How yeah. do I fix it? You're not yeah. stopping it. it. You're not fixing it because it's not broken. It's how do you focus on you know, what your core values, what your core benefit is. So uh, you see a lot of small businesses making a fatal mistake, which says, well, I'm just not going to invest in employee training for the first year until I know they're going to stick, stick around. Yeah. And then you look at, so uh, as of this year, 50% of your workforce on average will leave before they complete year one of your new hires. Wow. So 50%, 50%. Half of my new hires are out before year one. 
And you wow. look at the finances, year one's a wash. Like best thing you can do is maybe get some money back. But year one's an investment from an employer. You want to show these employees uh, how your business works and make them fruitful so that year two, you can really start reaping returns on an investment. So the worst thing you can do as an employer is say, well, screw it. I'm just not going to invest because now you're exaggerating the problem because now you're pushing them out the door because back to the reasons people leave. One of the next top reasons that outweighs pay is, is my company investing in me? Is there professional yeah. development happening? Because again, this is constructively, this is a two to four year stop on my journey that I'm going to share with you as an employer. This is the new mindset. So as crazy as you think it is, social norms, this is just the way people think now. So just like any other relationship, right? Is this going to be a good relationship, a happy relationship, or is this going to be a sour relationship where I got to cut and run? For Bowden, so forgive me, but I always come back and say, think about it as a personal relationship. Would you want to date this company? If you went out on a date with a guy or a gal and they never picked up the tap, are you looking to commit to that relationship or are you looking <laughs> to transition out of yeah. that relationship? And now you think about it, your employer. So every time you show up, if they're sucking from you and saying, what have you done for me lately? And they're putting nothing back in, how emotionally invested are you going to be in that employer? And so the employer says, how do I stop them from leaving? And the first thing is, well, first let's bring in the mirror <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and take a good look because are you truly exemplifying you know, the behavior you want. Are you, are you a good date? Because if you're yeah. not a good date, there's a reason everybody's asking for the check and bolting for the door. But so, uh, so I got it. How are companies hiring now though? Because we're all Gen Xers in this room. Mm -hmm. You were flaky if I jumped from job to job and I, well, if I would have said in my twenties, well, they weren't really thinking of my, you know, people have been like, get over it. And I would have looked like a flake. Nobody would have wanted to hire me. So how are companies making smart hiring decisions if you've got com people that 50% of them aren't going to stay well six months in? I, I didn't want to date them. They weren't, they weren't right. investing enough in right. me. And, or, you know, w excuses that we as Gen Xers may roll our eyes at, although are valid, right? Yep. How can companies make smart hiring decisions and looking at these people to say, oh, I, I know what that company did wrong. We can, we're, we're going to, we're going to be a better fit because we're going to do A, B, and That's C versus kind of the they're kind of flaky. Right? That's like saying I'm the best date ever. Right. So like, like yeah. I love the analogy. You of, should believe you of, are right. Of dating. Well, even, and even <laughs> yeah. to that degree, like sooner or later you're the asshole, right? Right. So there was a company I worked yeah. at that had an asshole Never. award and it was my yeah. favorite thing because you just passed it around. Yeah. And sooner or later, everybody's Somebody got it. Yeah. And it just keeps you humble. Like, yeah. you know, as nice as I try to be, I'm going to have my off day. I'm going to be the jerk. Yeah. So just because you go on a bad date, does that mean you're a jerk? Does that mean the person you're with is a jerk? Yeah. Or does I don't it just know. mean there, it doesn't click? Yeah. So this is one of the things that's changing. And so you look at technology leaders and technology trailers or followers. The leaders, you go out to Amazon, you go out to Facebook, you go out to Google, Apple. Do they care if you have two-year stints? No, because they know the numbers. You can pull the data science. The new generation's two years. You're happy to get two years. That's pretty much 10 years. That's so crazy to me. So do you think that is inhibiting the potential for innovation? And I'm bringing it back as far as yeah, you're not if involved you're not, enough. If you're not involved enough, are you even thinking of enhancing whatever that business is or services offering whatever product? Is that going to kill America? I'm assuming these numbers are based on American or you guys doing global? That's the other idea now. Both. Yeah. So, so the topic of today's conversation is largely centered around you know American social norms and data science, but it's not unique to America. I mean, for instance, we have offices uh, in Lebanon and India, and we get ghosting in both. So, ghosting really? is not 
You'd I mean, think we like may the be Indian the population pace. would be all, or India from people from India would be all about like I'm going to show. You would think like to the me, culture would have driven. Yeah, the their culture would be like I am. It's like this perfect. I'm going to show up and be perfect, and you know what I mean. So anyway, putting it all in context. That's my you ignorance. Started talking. it off. Yeah. It's actually not you. You were very insightful, yeah. but again, it's very complicated. So you have to remember to keep all yeah. the points. Uh, in, in you know conscious forward. Yeah. You said the internet keeps us closely connected. So yeah. yesteryear when we had our tribalism, and now we have the internet where everything can be global in five minutes, right? Right. And so everybody watches everybody else. And so there's this employer hunger in the United States that driving, um, I want top talent and I will be very cutthroat to get it. So I'm going to give you an offer you can't refuse and you're going to come work for me and you're going to ghost whoever you just accepted the offer from. And that's just the way it is. But now I can't, I mean, we, we, we have a staffing problem. I can't staff my job. So now I'm going to offshore those. I'm going to behave the exact same way when I'm offshore. I'm going to say, look, I need to fill this. I need you to build a scrum team. Go do it. And I don't care who you have to steal that talent from. Go do it. So we've perpetuated that bad behavior from corporate America of, of, of not developing yeah. talent but scalping talent to the point where it's happening almost universal yeah. wherever you go. Anyone with tech skills is getting multiple offers. And so you have to assume this when you make an offer, if it's, if it's in a skilled training yeah. captive audience, that there's going to be multiple offers on the table. So how do you – now we'll take this to buying a house. If you really want that house, how are you going to sweeten your deal to make sure the seller takes your offer and not one of the other offers? So is that showing them, you know, in, uh, in investment, like 401k mm -hmm. matching? Is it showing you a great work from home policy? Is it showing you all sorts of new things are coming out? Companies are paying off your college debt as a perk to keep you ingrained to say, you know, bonus aside, I know you've got a lot of college debt out there. So if you come work for me, I'll whack that off, you know, so many thousands of dollars a year. Dang. Yes. It's kind and of a pessimistic view. I'm trying to be optimistic here. I mean, is there... Is this just where our society is moving towards? Is it? Is it just is what it is? Dang how do we? How do we work through it? How do we bring that accountability back? I guess, or do we? Or does it well, matter? When I started startup, I had that kind of same view. Where it's just where where does it end, and how do we turn the ship around? And you know, one of the things in startup is you're looking for you know whoever the famous thing beg borrow steal right whoever can help you out. And if I can't find somebody to beg borrow steal from, then where do I go to Upwork? Um, and I just find someone who I can contract for a few hours to help me out. And you just realize this, this whole transient interaction uh, and online, th this is the, the new world order, for lack of a better term. For the next generational cycle, this isn't crazy, right? So that back to that okay boomer. For the people that think this is crazy, you're that generation. For the next coming generations, this is We're the way so it parents. is. I know. Right? And, but and again, like back to the things you look, look out. And I always say, like, you know, for as crazy as I think some of these new perspectives are, I find value in things like you would walk out on your business for your family. That to me That's is great. quite yeah. noble. Yeah. No, and the that fact is... that I've had countless friends, colleagues trade their marriage for jobs. And I'm yeah. just like, why? Why? Yeah, or their kids, or they're traveling all yeah. over, and they miss out on their whole kid. Yeah. Like that makes me sad when you're just selling. Uh, I mean, sales kind of that one of them, right. but uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, boomer. I'm sorry that cracks me up. Still, I do have to mention it because it it's, is the it's, moment. But it, but it's. I would like to see, and it, and it's going to happen as the next generation matures, as they start going into politics. I can see policy starting to uh, evolve as a result of it as well. Um, I just. Man alive. 
what happened to the Gen X? Why aren't we being included in these uh, behavioral patterns? But are I we think, just? Oh, I think we've kind of meshed because I think we've. In here, like, there's moments when I started. For example, I was in, and we've talked about this before too, where I was in the mode of, you know, my dad get a job, and I had, you know, I was, I still, I got, I work for Accenture, and I calculated, and I was going to get a three percent raise, and oh my gosh, this was going to be amazing, but then through some changes. Uh, I changed jobs. I saw layoffs and it was like, oh, wait a minute. Luckily, I dodged it. But corporate America is not taking care of me like I thought. And I feel like Gen X is like we started in with the with the values of our parents and that mindset. Mm -hmm. But the reality of, oh, things uh, acquisitions happen a lot more than they did back in the day. And I feel like we've kind of meshed into that we're still on the suck it up mind right. mind or phase in a little bit but we're also in the well maybe it's not so bad to want some balance like yeah i don't want to miss out on my kid's life like my dad missed out on mine like i want to find some balance so maybe moving up isn't as important to me so i feel like we're just kind of in the middle i don't know if you have data to back there is data to back yeah. it up so it's it's a bridge generation yeah uh, we're rooted in the boomers yeah um, so you look at um nostalgia so you mm-hmm. get into to some of these words um, and then things that that draw back to data science and psychology. So uh, the breakdown of nostalgia, and forgive me because I'll probably screw it up a little bit, um, but it's, it's essentially learning through pain. And so we think about nostalgia as these uh, childhood memories. Yeah. But when you break them down, those deep-seated memories usually come with turmoil. So you think about uh, a holiday, right? And there was a bad winter snowstorm and everybody was snowed in and you couldn't get anywhere. But oh, by the way, there was this fire and you were roasting marshmallows. And so it's implanted in your brain. And that you know brings back this happiness. But when you really think about it and you expand on the actual memory, there was a lot of struggle which led to it. Yeah. And that's how those those memories implant. And so there's a lot of things like uh, you, you talk about moving up in a company. And while you can consciously turn your back on it, there's still this yearning because 100%. of the way you were raised, yeah. right? Yeah. Anytime somebody dangles an opportunity, you're like drawn to it. Whereas other generations, that's not necessarily the same. Yeah. And it's just yeah. the environment, right? And so from a generational behavioral perspective, you look at those adolescent years. Those are the most fundamental years to determine what a generation's expectation is going to be like. So when you look at the iGen and the iGen, there was a, a, a point that was brought up in terms of minimalism. And the iGen is the most minimalistic generation since the Great Depression children. Um, and the reason is they got to go through the housing crisis. They got to see their families lose everything and literally pack up and leave you know, over a weekend or overnight because they were getting evicted or somebody was coming. And if they didn't get, get out, yeah. Bad things were going to happen. Um, and it sticks with them, you know, to that minimalism of, you know, what do you have today? And, and for them, they're, you know, we, we say things like, you know, they have a lot of debt, so they don't have a lot of uh, discretional spending. But that's only half the story, right? Yes, that part is true. But with the discretion spending they have, and you look at what their uh, buying patterns are, similar to millennials, they talk about, um, spending on experiences, right? They don't spend on things right. like Xers and They'd boomers. We wanted a big house yeah. with big with lots of stuff in it. Fill it up. But at yeah. the end of the day, we know stuff doesn't make us happy. An extra no. square footage is more to clean. So why do we do it? Again, back to the way we were raised. But for these two generations, 
they see it completely opposite. They're like, the mo- whatever I have, you can take from me. So why would I ever want to spend all this money on something I have that you can take away? Where if I go skydiving and actually spend that money on an experience that I'm going to remember forever, you can't take that away yeah. from me. So, okay. So bring this into the way technology and society is going to evolve. And I've seen this is they don't want possessions. If I understand you correctly, they're not buying cars, for example. Do you think this, because of this mentality, the idea of the whole connected car, the fact that IoT, smart cities, where there's going to be automated travel mechanisms in place, do you think this is going to force or rush it in faster? The fact that they're not car dependent, the fact that they don't mind public transportation, or they'd rather Uber or Lyft or Alto than uh, <laughs> got an Alto than actually drive themselves anywhere. I mean, my nephew, yeah. we had to beg him. We had to drag his you know what, to the DMV to get a driver's license. Yeah. And he's not an outlier anymore. Most kids no. don't have, like, most is relative term. There is a significant number of, of kids at 16 that just don't have, I mean, it used to be a rite of passage and now it, it doesn't happen. I mean, I, I know young adults at 21 that are finally getting their driver's license because mainly for, for drinking age and getting a, a, <laughs> a hotel when you oh. travel and renting a car because now you have to have one. And prior to 21, they didn't really see yeah. a need for one, depending on their environment. Do you think that's going to accelerate technology, though, because they, because of their lack of desire for permanence and stuff? Do you think that's going to shift a new uh, direction in innovation? What we as Boomer Gen Z or Gen X of what we think of is in an innovative product, do you think the millennials are going to sh- pivot and well, create they different? Already have. Well, you've got Uber and Airbnb that are already showing you. I mean, these are companies that are well ahead of their time. But you see the value today. And originally when they came out, like a lot of them, right, they were just crazy. Nobody saw it except for these are both companies started by, you know, millennial generationers because they they saw the new world order. I just need a place to crash for tonight. How do I find that when I'm traveling? I, I need a hostel. We don't do hostels in the United States. How do I just find somebody's couch? Yeah. And that was the premise. How do I, you know, get a cab that's decentralized because I'm in a town that's so small, they don't really have a big cab company that's here. How do I just ride share? Um, and now you, you evolve that going forward um, to things where when, when, when I've done quite a bit in um, multifamily and leasing and, and short-term rentals where uh, you, know, you, you think about cell phones and you got the big carriers that lock into these two-year mm-hmm. contracts and we all think they're crazy, right, wrong, and different. And then you've got... Um, uh, the MVNOs that are up and coming and they just do month to month pay as you go. And you look at, at both sides of the argument of why would I be locked into a contract pros and cons, but at the same time, Hey, I just want to pay for a month. Why, why can't I find somebody now you transcend that to housing. I'm coming as a summer intern, but yet the only housing I can get is a one year lease. Why? And you're seeing this change right now. Why can't I rent month to month? You got a security deposit. If I trash it, you're making me pay for it. So why do you care if I rent it month to month? And back to the boomer perspective where I want you to stick here for a certain amount of time, but that's really not my job. That's some sort of old school tribalism. Whereas the reality, the need I'm trying to serve is I need a place to stay for four months. I'm a good person. Why wouldn't you rent for me in four months? And if you do rent for rent to me for four months, why does that have to look like a blemish on my record? Right? It's win-win when you take a step back and say, look, is this a happy relationship? Because we can still be friends and we're still gaining. Yeah. From each other. And and so employers, lifestyle, everything, it's just essentially we are a transient society. We're all moving that way. And innovation 
and businesses are adapting. You're either going to adapt. My first employer was Kodak. So I can tell you firsthand about going <laughs> yeah. the way of About adaption, yeah. Hey, yeah. they're coming back, aren't they? No, oh, they're, they're back. Go- they're back, yeah. aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they emerged yeah. from bankruptcy. They're yeah. an IP holding yeah. company. And um, there's a whole, I, I, I talk about, you know, what happens when your board holds you hostage because, you know, the shareholders own your company and they just want returns, even though as an employee of Kodak, we were telling them the whole time. We knew. We had a 10-year transition plan to get off analog. Yeah. Analog was just so profitable. And the board wouldn't let us. I mean, 80% profit returns on analog versus 35 off digital. Digital, yeah. The Hubble Space Telescope went up with a Kodak CCD array bringing those images back to Earth. Most people don't realize that. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, that we had it. That's why uh, there's two technologies in digital cameras, CCD and CMOS. And anytime you don't see many CCDs anymore because you have to pay royalties to Kodak to use that. So they've all gone CMOS, which is a, a more oh, open, open standard. There's less royalties involved. But yeah, the first cameras were CCD. And What does CCD stand for? Oh, CCD. C- that's too, right. Too long. They were the competing technologies. It's like beta versus VHS yeah. is essentially. Hey, you done dated yourself right there too. <laughs> Half the audience doesn't understand what you're talking about there. I'm kidding. No. It no, I mean, we could but talk about cassette this. Cassette tapes are coming back, baby. Oh, man, alive. Are I'm they gonna... really? Yes. There is a shortage right now because there's such demand. I mean, granted, there's not. Who's demanding Why? that? Why? Who demand that? Uh, from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's created nostalgia. And they're. Oh, the Walkman. Oh, no, I heard the Walkman. They, they came out yeah. with it again. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about it from a producer, uh, so fun things about economics and technology. So when I had vinyl and when I had tape, I had built in obsolescence obsolescence, right? So both media would degrade over time. Right. So you were forced to buy new. Once the CD came out and it was digital, you don't ever have to buy new again. It's a one and done type deal. And so these nostalgia where you see LP coming back and you see tape coming back and as crazy as you think it is, that's easy money because you're going to buy it. And within a few years, that copy is going to age. And other than the baseball card effect, if you want another copy, you're going to come buy another copy. It's just, even if it's yeah boutique, it's good business to be in. Yeah, I was getting into that where I would uh, buy it on iTunes and then realize I had the CD somewhere. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that's okay. Yeah, I got to get rid of the CDs though because I have nowhere to play them anymore. But anyway, that's another yeah, no, story. That, for another no, we, time. you guys, we're, I think I we're know, starting to digress. I, know. I think we could keep going. Andrew, it's this is such a fun conversation and it's yeah. kind of sobering, but it's also exciting as well because there is opportunity. So much to think With about. change, yeah. is always opportunity. always opportunity. So, Aaron, do you have any other questions for I Andrew? I don't. I don't. Andrew, I, I just want to say thank you so much. I, I know we're going to keep on talking and we could, we could be here all day. Don't be day. pessimistic. So to your point, if sometimes you get pessimistic, you got to stop yourself there and say, there's nothing wrong. It's just change. And it's sometimes change. you're change averse, but there is so much opportunity. Uh, you know, with change comes opportunity, especially from an entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism yeah. perspective is that the big companies are a little bit slower to embrace that. And that's why you're seeing back to what happened to the Xers. The Xers all became small business owners and entrepreneurs. That's yeah. what happened. So we are, that's yeah. what we be doing. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm, we need I, to know how to hire these dang millennials. Dang millennials. Well, I can help you with it. Okay. No, <laughs> exactly. No. So Andrew, if anyone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about trend data, where can they go? I uh, can go to uh, www.trenddata.com and you can reach out to me personally at adavis at trenddata.com. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Aaron, Andrew, I think that wraps it up for another episode of Innovation Calling. <laughs>